Hi guys, my name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Let me tell you, the hardest part of every podcast episode is the beginning. <laughs> I'm always like, hi, hope you've had a great day. And I'm just like, or, I don't know, like, or a great morning. Okay, maybe you're listening to this in the night. Like, <laughs> that's the only part that made traditional radio easier because it was broadcasting live. So if I say good morning, unless you're tuning in from another country, chances are it's morning, right? Yeah. Anyway, hope you're great. <laughs> Regardless of whatever time you're listening to this or your time zone and all of that. And that your week was awesome. I had a very jam-packed week because I put up part one of the second episode of my second podcast <laughs> called Perspective. I've spoken about it in past episodes. So um, if you check out my Instagram, which is at Delonyango, all the details of Perspective are there. So trying to figure out how to get the video episodes because the, the audio is easy because I edited myself and, you know, I'm in control of that whole process. But I work with a company in Kenya called Ronin Production. And so then I have to go pick up the video, come home and then my home Wi-Fi connection without fail. Every time I have to upload something always fails me. <laughs> so it took me an entire day to upload something so i normally use zuku at home and i was meant to move from zuku but i got lazy last month i don't know man it's just weird sometimes i wonder what i'm paying for with zuku because the times i really need the internet it's like they know and they're like ha internet for who anyway i'm done venting about it the episode did go up eventually it only took me a full day <laughs> Last time it took me like two, three days. <laughs> and yeah, so it's out and I was so nervous to put it out. I don't know if you go through the same thing, like when you've worked on something and you have to showcase it with the world, you're just like, yeah, people are going to hate this part or it's not perfect enough and you start second guessing yourself. Hey, it's a lot. And especially in the social media age where people can be really mean. Yeah, actually the word is mean. People can be really mean with their opinions on your work. I understand criticism that's there to grow you or there to give you feedback on a product or a show or whatever. And, you know, that you can take into consideration when you're crafting the next thing. And then these people who are just straight up mean. So, for example, this morning... I went on a TV show in Kenya and we're talking about radio, the past, present and future. And it was like about six radio presenters. I think, yeah, I was the only one on the panel who is podcasting and we're just having a really good conversation about radio and whether it's king, the digital disruption and what that means for media, specifically radio. Anyway, so I get off and I'm trying to do the thing where especially on Twitter, I try not to read comments. And most of the comments were really good, so I did resp respond to people. But there's this one guy. And you know we're humans, so the nasty comments will always stand out somehow. I have to be conscious about not giving them more attention than the positive. Though I'm talking about it on my podcast, so maybe I am giving. <laughs> 
Anyway, I'm talking about it as an example. So this guy was basically like, radio is your home. Nobody understands podcasts. Nah, nah, nah. I'm just like, hey. 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 How did I hurt you by leaving radio? Why so emotional, man? Um, But I was just like, you know what? It's okay because sometimes people don't really understand your vision. And that's fine. It's not for them to understand. It's for you to understand and have it. And you really can't engage with every barking dog. Sometimes I've engaged with people and then I just realized it's ruined my mood or it's triggered me to feel a certain way. So nowadays I'm really selective. You have to really go in on things that I'm passionate about, like gender-based violence or something around youth employment and or come for my family. Then, you know, <laughs> I'm really going in. You know, you just always have to catch yourself and remember, not everybody will understand your vision and, and that's perfectly fine. In fact, sometimes there are people, you know, like in the journey to trying to make your dreams a reality, which is really what has been on my mind this week, there will be perceived failures. And I say perceived because at least in my experience and in my, yeah, in my experience, whenever somebody would ask me, so what are your greatest failures and blah, 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 I never have a ready answer because... From a young age, I was trained by my late mom to always see failures as a lesson or a chance to go back to the drawing board and try again. So much so that it became habit. So much so that I don't see failure as failure. But it doesn't stop people on the outside looking at things like failure. So for example, there are people who I'm very sure of. I've not interacted with them. <laughs> then again, I have like two friends. But anyway, there are people who I'm very sure will view me leaving one of Kenya's top urban stations as a failure in my career and be like, it's chick, like that was a wrong move, blah, 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 which is okay. I mean, you can perceive my moves as a failure because you're on the outside. You don't really have a deeper understanding of what's going on in-house. So in your journey to trying to make your dreams a reality, there will be those people who will perceive certain moves of yours as failures and you need to protect yourself against those people because sometimes if they catch you on a down day or on a day when you're struggling to keep believing in this dream they can influence you to give up i try to keep away from those types of people i've just been putting a lot more focus on celebrating myself and celebrating even what may appear to others as a really small win i think Sometimes we go a bit too hard on ourselves and focusing on this dream and we're like, yeah, it's not yet a reality. We have so much more to do. But the dream becoming a reality, I think, happens because of many collective small movements, right? Small movements forward that result in you finally getting to realize this vision, to realize this dream. So it's good to stop and celebrate the small things. So if you have a business and you made your first sale, be like, oh my God, go me. <laughs> and just really soak in the positivity of what could be perceived as small wins. If on a personal level, you're trying to 
you know, work on your self-esteem or your self-confidence, be it in terms of your personality, you feel like there's certain things you want to try and work on, or even just your physical being, then make those small things that you achieve something that you can celebrate. So for example, and I've talked about this, I think in episode five, I'm not sure, about body image. And for me, me constantly being very scared to show my arms because I have eczema scars around my elbows. So my skin around my elbows is like really dark. Okay, in my head, it's like really dark. But then sometimes I see it in pictures, I'm like, mm, is it really? I'm like, your head may exaggerate too. Because <laughs> you've been so self-conscious about this thing. And then on my legs... I have, again, eczema scars, but also scars that I got from getting raped. And so I would always be in stockings, like super thick stockings, like you could not see my skin. But over time, I started slowly like wearing three-quarter sleeves, and I'd celebrate that. And then I'd feel like, hmm, I want to feel that feeling again. So then I'd be like, okay, let's go with the half sleeves, celebrate that, and then let's go to no sleeves, sleeveless tops and vests, and then wearing shorts without stockings or skirts without stockings and, you know, shift dresses without stockings and celebrating myself every time I did that to kind of like cheer me on and encourage me. And it's really done wonders and worked wonders for my own self-esteem and self-confidence. So whether it's a personal thing, whether it's business, whether it's a project, whether it's, you know, your journey towards realizing your dream, the small wins, celebrate them. And the failures, I think it helps to look at them as a learning lesson. And it's always very hard to do that. People I'm pretty sure there are very many quotes that talk about that, but it's very, very hard. And sometimes when you realize how hard it is, you back out of it, but it'll always be hard, but it's very fulfilling to start changing your mindset around failure and around celebrating yourself. It's extremely fulfilling, I think. But speaking of failure, (laughs) on 100 African Stories this week, first and foremost, I need to celebrate myself. I recorded the first story on Skype, which is going to mean that we're going to have a lot more stories from many other African countries. So I'm super excited about that. Insert clap here. (laughs) But on this week's episode, I recorded Nelly, who comes from Rift Valley in Kenya, grew up in a small village and went through a series of challenges to getting to a point where she is running one of Kenya's top cosmetic companies that is really centered around creating products for dark-skinned girls. She shares with us a series of stories that document challenges that grew her to be the CEO that she is today. A hundred African stories. There is no proper life that you live in university as a musician. If I constantly just walked around feeling sorry for myself, I'm never going to get anything done. Uh, there was a bit of frustration in between all of that. I've been breaking my back for this company. Therapy is not for the weak or for the crazy. Stories from Africa. My name is Nelly Twikong. I grew up in Rift Valley, um, Kenya, live in Nairobi. And adulting sucks. I remember I used to really want to grow up so bad. I remember 
when I was um, 19, 18, and I would uh, shop Mutumba, which is secondhand clothes, and buy suits, freaking suits, at 19. And I wanted to grow up so fast. And now that I'm grown up, I, I don't like I don't like it one bit. Um, but at the same time, I look back at my life and all the challenges that I've had in life, and I come to realize one thing that challenges do shape us to become the people we are supposed to be. After high school, my mom had to leave home to go get a job somewhere else. She was a nurse and she had been retrenched in 2000 when the Kenyan government was going through a huge retrenchment season. And so she was one of the people who got, who lost their jobs. And after that, she went on to start a business, get into um, small scale farming like most Kenyans do to help supplement income for, for the family. And so eventually around the time I was finishing high school, she got a job really far away. So she had to leave and I had to fit into her shoes so that I could take care of my two brothers and my dad. Mm -hmm. And that meant making sure that the beans in the, in, the, in the farm was harvested on time, otherwise they would rot. The maize was also harvested in time. And most of the time, once it was harvested, then she would be there to make sure that, you know, how many bags they would have, and then she would have to go back to work. So after that, it was my responsibility to sell it. And so most of the time, because it was something that would help sustain us, I would sell it. So I would sell like one tin of beans to buy flour mm -hmm. for Ugali. So that was already responsibility at a very young age, a big responsibility. I was being both a parent to my siblings and to my dad. Because <laughs> with my dad, it meant... I would have to open up the door for him whenever he came home, however late that was, mm. drunk. So 4 a.m., I'd get a knock on my window, and like a dutiful wife, I'd wake up and open the door. So all these things, of course, going through it, it sucked. And even just thinking about it, it sucked. But I think it really taught me responsibility at a very young age. It taught me how capable I was at a very young age. I left home at some point because uh, my brothers eventually, you know, they went to school. So it was just myself and my dad. And I was like, dude, no, you didn't marry me. <laughs> I am out of here. So I left. I went to the, to the city to live with my aunt. And so as I was figuring my way around life because... I didn't have a plan B, so to say. I we could not afford to take me to college, or my parents could not afford to take me to college. I had to find a job. Again, so that was responsibility. But then, again, the, the level of responsibility as you grow up, it changes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't have children right now, so for the people who have kids, I, I can't even imagine what kind of responsibility that is. There will always be something else that you're going to face that is probably bigger than what you faced before. But what it does is that what, what happens to you right now is setting you up for the next moment. 
Um, so the, the pressures, and even right now, I'm going through so much pressure and so many challenges, my family back home, my business, and myself personally. And I know one thing for a fact is that if I was experiencing these challenges last year, I think I would have crumbled. Mm -hmm. But there have been things that have happened the past year mm -hmm. that have kind of helped build up my resilience. Mm -hmm. So I moved to the city because, again, it was just me and my dad. And I was tired of opening the door for him at four in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were also the neighbor's boys who used to come and knock on my door at night. Remember, I'm alone at home. Mm -hmm. It's the village. The dog knows them. So I can hear the dog with them getting excited. And I'm like, you betrayer. <laughs> But, you know, it, it was so scary because in my th my head, I was like, if they could break into the door, they would have probably gang raped me or mm. something. So I was like, peace, I'm gone. So I go, I move in with my aunts and, you know, I try to find jobs and um, try to figure it out. So one time I went to visit my mom. Um, I didn't even have money. I went to a, a shop. We used to buy stuff, milk, mm. whatever. And I... Asked the shopkeeper if he could, the owner, I was like, I, I think I borrowed like 500 shillings mm -hmm. and I promised to pay it back. I didn't even know how I was going to pay it back. Um, so I went to visit my mom um, and my mom <laughs> worked in this place, it's called Tinderit, where there were two loose elephants <laughs> <laughs> that were rampaging the village because it was right next to uh, a forest. And so there was a curfew that you have by seven, everybody needs to be in the house. But literally these two elephants, a male and a female, would even come and like, you know, so it was a tea estate. So the most of the tea pickers and stuff like that would live in huts. Like literally you're eating dinner at night and there's just a, an elephant trunk that just comes into your house and just like upsets the entire house, literally. So... I had to go visit my mom, <laughs> minding that I have to get there on time before the elephants come out. <laughs> and then um, I, I spend my, the weekend with my mother, then I come back. So I come back to a very, very upset aunt. So I think, you know, I came back and I think it was okay. And then I think two days later, I think she'd been stewing it in, in, in all this. At 6 p.m., she asks me to pack my bags and leave her house because she is convinced I was shacking up with some dude in a hotel. At 6 p.m. in a big city where I don't know anybody, I have to pack up my stuff and leave. This is my blood relative. I've been caring for her kids. I've been taking care of her house. Okay, she's feeding me <laughs> and housing me. But yeah, so she literally asked me to pack and leave. I knew, you know, I it was LD, so I knew I had some friends from high school who were in university somewhere around here. Mm -hmm. So I called, um, and one chick I used to go to, I was in high school with, she was in one of the more university campuses, Chepkoilel. So she was like, just come over. I'm staying with my boyfriend, but we'll figure it out, mm -hmm. literally, at 6 p.m. So I packed my stuff and I went. She housed me for a few, like about a week. So in the meantime, I was looking for a place. Remember, I don't have a job. I don't have nothing. 
ended up finding another friend who because at, at this time remember I, I was not able to go to university so all my friends from high school were in uni mm. people's lives were moving on so there was another friend of mine in high school who was in a, in a different campus still more university campus um, and we she I think she was preparing to move out of home and you know find a place where you know she could commute easily from campus so we moved in together it was a 3000 shillings like one bedroom house yeah. um and so we we were going to be able to split 1500 1500 mm. yeah and then after that i started looking for jobs you know there's like things that really stand out in your life mm. and that was a very big more like it took my mom to intervene to help to get me to forgive her mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff but so, so that was like one big one that really stood out and I think after that it was because you know I was a village girl who had just come into the city and now I had to figure my way around because mm-hmm. if I had survived not I didn't die mm-hmm. right I survived it was 6 p.m. I mean the worst could have been that I was going to sleep on the streets or I could have just gotten into a matatu and maybe borrow somebody a hundred bob on in the stage or like go cry to somebody and be like, hey, I've been kicked out. I want to go home and then just go home, go back home. My, my dad was back home. Yeah. Um, and remember, those were the times when cell phones were not, were just breaking into Kenya. <laughs> yeah. So owning a cell phone was a huge deal. Yeah. So it was still like, doing phone booths Mm -hmm. right so i'd had to track so it was like what was the worst that could have happened Mm -hmm. is probably i would have slept in the streets for the night but the thing is i realized i and and challenges even from prior to that because there's just been just shit that had happened in our lives Mm -hmm. that allowed me to be a survivor so whatever else that came up after that i think i was just able to be like you know what (laughs) <laughs> I'm alive. Um, that is all that matters. Yeah. So you figure it out as you go. But beyond that, yeah, there were so many challenges that came up. Um, trying to make sure I was meeting rent. My first job, I, I, I think I was fired. I was selling, I was working in a shop. So the, the shop owner used to come and sell and, and count sweets. Mm. I think she missed, missed a few sweets, tropical sweets. <laughs> so I was fired. Um, then I found another job. Um, and, and I realized, I was like, damn, I am resilient. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even realize that actually immediately, but it was um, maybe a year or two or four, three later that I realized, like, I'm, I'm incredibly resilient. Mm-hmm. And it's all these moments that have culminated to being the person that I am. And actually, the, the Vusi quote that I was thinking about is like, he says, growth is not the things I need to do. It's about the person I need to become. Mm-hmm. So I became the person I needed to become. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nelly that I needed to become to survive this and then the next challenge and then the next challenge. Uh, so I was a critical care nurse. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., so I managed to get a sponsorship to go study abroad, because otherwise, man, that was just like, okay. <laughs> Not happening. 
hey, this one, this one was this godsend. So yeah, I got a sponsorship to go study um, in the United States. And I knew I always wanted to come back. I, I didn't know how, but I remember that day on the tarmac waiting to take over. And I remember telling my family and friends I was going to come back. So fast forward, I finished my degree. And in between, I had start, decided to start a cosmetics brand for African women. Yeah. So that brings me back. My first shipment comes in about almost a year and a half since I'd been back. Mm-hmm. And uh, prior to that, I was working, um, I was doing clinical research. So my shipment comes in and I get the bill for um, Kerry, Kenya Revenue Authorities, and I've been just hit with this huge tax bill mm-hmm. and even before the products come in you've already done the calculations you know how much you're going to pay in taxes mm-hmm. so the sh- the products come in and i'm being hit with like almost 1.3 million in taxes i don't know anybody i don't know you know me I, i'm still a, a village girl just just because I, I i was kicked out in the city and i you know i went and just you know made it happen I was still a village girl. I had not really traveled much. Mm. So I'm being told to go to the carrier offices in Nairobi. I have no idea where it is. I don't know anyone. So I come and the carrier folks in Nairobi tell me the shipment is in Mombasa, Mm. the port. So that's where you'd have to sort it out. So I'm like, okay, we go. (laughs) And, 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 and if you think about it, like all these things that have just been happening just culminated to this thing of just saying like, yeah, let's go to Mombasa. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where I'm going, but I'm yeah. just like, yeah, let's go. So I get to Mombasa. I get to the, I, I take a cab. I get to the port at the gate and they're like, madam, where is your badge? I'm like, badge for what? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, you can't go inside the port without a badge or somebody coming for you and stuff like that. I was like, I don't know anyone. (laughs) So I just tell the taxi, okay, let's park on the side. So then I see, you know, in the, at 4 PM. So I literally stayed there the whole day. So in the evening, when the people are coming out from, from work, you know, you just dandia, cause somebody there. No, actually, no, it wasn't that late. It was lunchtime. Yeah. They're coming out for lunch. So you just dandy as somebody, you, you know, you tell your story. And they're like, and luckily, um, just these like interesting moments, just almost freak moments as well that happened where I ended up talking to one of the girls from customs department who was like, was in the marketing department for customs who ended up actually getting me in. Mm-hmm. So I went to speak to her boss, who was like the marketing person in customs, but then they're like, they're like I'm in marketing. I, but the boss was so nice enough to take me to the customs, to the carry boss. Mm-hmm. So so all this happened, like it took time. So by the time we're getting to the carry boss, it was about 5 p.m. Wow. And he's about to leave. We come in, you know, those of like you're being told to wait, and then he's just about to go in, and the secretary is like, go, 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 go. <laughs> <laughs> and so you go, and you clearly he's like, oh, 
you know yeah. i need to leave so he get, he indulges us he gives us um time and i explain i was like i'm bringing this shipment and blah 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 and i think it's been overvalued and thank god he was this, this dude who had no clue about anything about beauty so of course he's like what those those eye pencils things i'm like yes yes those ones those cheap ones um and so he's like there's no way these things can cost this much. I'm like, yes, thank you. And so he orders for a revaluation. And so I proceed to spend another five days at the port as they're revaluing my goods. And this whole time, I mean, it's, the, it's Mombasa. It is hot. Yeah. So every morning I would be there waiting. And there's like this man with like wife beaters just like, and I'm there with my two, two tiny dress, just waiting. And they're probably wondering, what are you doing here? Because most of the time at the port, it's just the people clearing, the men clearing cargo. Mm-hmm. After day two, it was assessed to be revalued. And then two days later, I made the payment. There was just a process mm-hmm. to it. And so by day five, I had my stuff. And I was like, how did that just, that just happen? That, that just happened. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Can we talk about the IRS basically blocking my friend's account? So the IRS, the equivalent of KRA in the U.S., literally froze my friend's bank account because, so the same damn shipment that was coming, I had to pay for it. But since I'd moved to Kenya, I had started the process while I was still in America. Like this whole idea of starting a beauty brand for Africans it started like as an idea in 2009. Mm-hmm. So between 2009 and 2010, when we were graduating, I used to work on this in class. And um, this was a friend who I tried to just pull into some random ideas that I had. And so she was very supportive. She was always supportive. So I've moved to Kenya and I've really gone ahead into this business idea that I had. I paid um, the deposits and all that. So production has has been done. So now we have to pay the last uh, remaining balance so that they can release the goods to come. So since I'm in Kenya, I cannot, because I just, you know, I was still, I still had like my US account and all that kind of stuff. And so we couldn't authorize payment directly from Kenya. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I had my friend actually wired money to her and um, she was now to send money to China Mm -hmm. to people she has never seen. And so I didn't know, but you cannot send money outside the U.S. over $13,000 or is it even over $10,000? It flags the arrest as like some just weird shit happening offshoring or drugs or whatever. And then it's going to China and Americans already hate China. So they freeze her account. I was like, I am done. I am now dealing with the American IRS. As much as we're, you know, our Kenyan carry, you know, we're like, oh, carry, blah, blah. Those people are friendly. Because <laughs> with the IRS, you, you, you just see email, and you don't even know if you're talking to a human being or if it's a robot or whatever. <laughs> and you're just in trouble. And then I'm a foreigner. So yeah, so she calls, she's like, yeah, my account has been frozen. So, and I'm, I'm scared because then, she, this is my friend. I've messed her up. I don't know if she's going to get arrested. I do not know. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what was I thinking? Why did I even move back? Why did I even think about this idea? 
this is a dumb idea this is not worth it so it was looking really fishy yeah. and then you have like from this african country and then um it's like you know obama is already like his ratings are going down <laughs> his ratings are going down so everything is just working against me. So I have to be on all these calls and verify things like social security. They ask you like random questions like, you know, where I went to school, like how much was being paid. I was being sponsored. I don't know how much was being paid. Yeah. So they had to verify who I was. And then they had to like ask questions about where I'm sending money. Mark you, actually, that was another stupid thing. I am sending money to people I do not know. Mm. So I'm like Chinese. Yeah, his name is Fred. <laughs> but actually no, my the the people who were handling my consignment, it just so happened actually they were Canadians. Mm-hmm. So they were also able to like now they were sucked into this whole thing of like this Kenyan scammer who's like scamming some girl in actually shout out to Mallory. She'll probably <laughs> hear this later. Um so they I had to have number of calls and then eventually they verified that the information was correct so and i was like guys i need to pay for this stuff because also they need to they cannot keep holding this stuff any longer otherwise i start incurring storage charges mm-hmm. it was sorted they released the money my friend had her and but i'm sure she was like on their radar for like <laughs> another few months one of the reasons why i decided to move back home was naturally in african households it there's always that kid who ends up being the caregiver for everybody mm-hmm. and i naturally had acquired that role for some reason um so i was taking care of my parents i was taking care of my brothers and my cousins and i used to get so nervous about if something bad happened at home what would i do and especially in a place like the US where you don't really get that much time off you know normal leave days is 2 weeks in a year i mean that's just 5 days is for getting over jet lag mm-hmm. um and travel mm-hmm. so i used to be worried about what would happen if something happened to my parents and i really wanted to be back for that reason that was one of the big reasons i just wanted to be there for my family about a year after i got back my dad got a stroke remember when i came back i was doing clinical research in eldoret which was about an hour and a half away from my home so it was easy to just commute um or for them to come to eldoret to the city the city that <laughs> you know made me grow up i moved back and then at the same time i was trying to transition into nairobi because I'd quickly realized, you know, running the business, there's no way I could have run, run it from Eldoret. So I was coming to Eldoret, trying to get an apartment, trying to kind of figure my way around Eldoret, Nairobi, I mean, learn streets and places, you know, like mm-hmm. if you would have told me, come to Langata, I, would, I had no clue where that was. I come into Nairobi. I was in Eldoret. I fly into Nairobi to just get something set up for the week. That evening, my mom calls me and tells me, um, I'm kind of worried about your dad because one side of his face is drooping. And so my mom is was a nurse. Mm-hmm. So she quickly thought it was a stroke. 
So then I'm like, okay, <clears throat> since I was already working at with and at Moy Teaching and Referral Hospital, we had some, you know, I had doctor friends and all that kind of stuff. So I tell them first thing in the morning to bring him. And I was booking a flight to go back first thing in the morning. By the time I got there, um, they already come in and he was already taken care of because my husband was in Eldred. So he really mobilized and they got an x-ray, blah, blah, blah. And literally in about two hours, they found out that he was having intracranial bleeding. Mm. So he was ble bleeding in his, literally his brain and the blood was pushing against the brain. And so that was why part of one of one side of his body was starting to get paralyzed. My fears was being <laughs> manifested mm -hmm. of what would happen if I was away, but then I was not away. I was here and I was able to do something about it. So he, that same day he gets surgery, he gets his brain surgery. They clean out a bunch of blood, which the neurosurgeon, which is, he's like one of the only, I don't know, like one or two neurosurgeons in, in, in Kenya, who then happens to be like now a close tie because I was in the medical fraternity at that time, literally saves my dad's life. And he was like, if, if it was just another two days, he would have died. They find out that he actually had fallen probably months ago, like December or something like that, because some of the blood had already was already dry and mm -hmm. clotting. Um, so he probably fell off a border mm -hmm. and my dad also drinks, so who knows? <laughs> my dad was difficult growing up. My dad was really difficult and I had, I'd always harbored all these just, just negative emotions about my dad. I resented him. I figured if he had done this then things would have been different. Mm -hmm. So I always carried this sort of like heavy, just resentment. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sitting there being like, please God, let him live. Please God, let him live. And, and, and I'm like, if he lives, we'll make sure that he doesn't drink again. Or if he lives, this will not happen. And I'll be a much more grateful daughter. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's strange because then, you know, somebody has who has caused you so much hurt, but then you're, you're bargaining for his life. It's such like, ah, uh, that kind of love is just weird. It's, I don't know. One thing that I know for sure that I've learned from all of this is that nothing lasts forever. Um, and if you're able to endure your situation, it will come to pass. But of course, it really depends, right? If, if, you're, if you have a terminal illness um, and all that kind of stuff, it's different. But nothing really lasts forever. If it's a heartbreak, if it's CRB coming after you, <laughs> you will survive. <laughs> we just also need to handle our business. And I think sometimes... Having challenges and, and problems sometimes is an excuse to say, and there's this word we use, especially in Kenya a lot, is like, Nimongu mm. But I think also God is calling you to like, like, dude, get up and fight. Mm. Just handle your shit, mm. right? Handle your business. There will be ups and downs. And so what I've learned to do is I ride my lows and I live up on my highs. So mm -hmm. when it's good, I just milk it. Mm -hmm. 
right? You, you know, those are the times you just do the most. And then when you're low, when things are down, just hang on, it will be over soon. Catch our next African stories in the next episode. So fun fact, how I met Nelly was through my aunt, my mom's sister, who relocated to Nairobi and was just about to set up her company Naledi Cosmetics, where she makes body cream and body butter from natural ingredients. Slight plug for the family. <laughs> Check out Naledi Cosmetics on Instagram. That ad was brought to you by, no, I'm playing. No, but seriously, check it out. But how I met Nelly was through my aunt. So I don't know in what forum they had met. So we began talking and I just really loved her energy. It was so genuine that it was refreshing because, you know, in this day and age, there's so many people who are just fake. And we kept talking and we had some sort of friendship. And last year, 2018, the beginning of the year, I wanted to honor my late mom. So I made a capsule collection called Anyango, which was my mom's Luo name. And one of the things that I did was have a limited edition lipstick with Nelly. Yeah, so it was the Anyango lipstick. We had such fun creating it and pushing it out there. Honestly, even in the tough times when we had to do like in-store activations, all of that, it really didn't feel like work. It felt like I was hanging out with a friend. So her energy is just so raw. It's so genuine and she's so driven. I learned so much about business from her. I love that she carries her identity and her story with her everywhere she goes. Anyway, drop your thoughts on this episode in the comment section or on Instagram. That's at Legally Clueless Podcast. A big thank you to everybody who tags me in screenshots of them listening to the podcast. Like, it just feels so amazing. And to the people who comment. In fact, maybe I should do a few shout-outs, Amma. Yes, why not? Olivia Hongere. Thank you so much. You comment on every single post and you listen to every single episode. I truly appreciate you. There is Gothic. That's your name on Instagram. Thank you. Thank you to Mukami Mbogo, Velda Karimi, Wangeshi Chomba, Diora D, my namesake Adele Mnene, Githenya, Duduzile from South Africa. Oh my God. Baby Ashi, I hope I say that right. And Samoina.k. <laughs> Seriously, guys, I try to respond to everybody because I truly do appreciate every one of you who listens, who comments, who shares. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of Legally Clueless. You can share this podcast with your friends. You can keep it for yourself. I'm not judging. Just make sure you're here next week for the next episode.